Hello, Rachel. Hello, Ryan. How are you going? Um. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Do you have a? Do you have something to say? Hmm. Do you have an eloquent speech to bestow upon us all that will make us cry in our place of listening? No. I don't want to assume people are sitting down. People may be standing while they listen to this. Laying down, perhaps. AC, is this Walking, a, running. Who walking, knows? running, other activities. All sorts of positions available to listen to this. Rachel said it. So we are the Yum Yum podcast, and we are a Babylon 5 rewatch podcast. To be specific, we're a sci-fi TV show rewatch because we have covered Star Trek in the past. We are currently going through Babylon 5, but either way, we are spoiling it. We are getting into the details of what we're discussing today, which is an episode of Season 2 of Babylon 5. And of course... Yum-yum is an iconic phrase said in Star Trek Discovery, a phrase, a saying, a moment that we witnessed with our eyes. We all got the chance to see multiple times. I made sure, I personally made sure on IMDb to change the thumbnail to that episode to her saying yum yum so you can thank me specifically for that choice because I was the hero somebody had to step up to the plate and correct the mistake that was the uh, uh, such sweet sorrow part 2 thumbnail on IMDb and I I'm not going to take any awards for it I'm a humble hero I will just settle for talking about things on the podcast through a yum yum prism because we love that line so much that we had to name ourselves after it and we had to give the podcast some yum yum flavoring such as asking who in each given episode of a thing we watch specifically about Babylon 5 episodes would have said yum yum if given the opportunity who has yye rachel yum yum energy in uh, the long twilight struggle. Uh, nobody jumps to mind because this episode's a lot rather dreary at, at mm. its peak. Like at its peak, it's dreary, and at the bottom, it's completely depressing. Yes. Um, but I'm going to go with one of the nine at the bar when they get into the fight. Wow. You're not even going to say drawl. Drawl in that big booming voice. Sheridan, my friend, I am drawl. Yum, yum. He definitely has YYE. I, in fact, he has so much energy that he could power an entire nation. That's how much energy that drawl has. And a okay. close contender for me, second place, Lord Reefer. Especially when he was given Reefer the always Reefer always has it. it. But especially when he was doing the whole 
Come on, Londo, destiny awaits. He has that real woo energy. But as stated, we are talking about an important episode of Babylon 5, so that means that we have to read out the DVD description for this. What does the DVD of this have to say about the long twilight struggle? Which well, is you're episode, about to answer that. Which is episode 20 of season two. We're nearing the end. We've got two episodes after this, and then we're done with season two. So to answer that long-awaited question of the DVD summary, here we are. A final bloody battle determines the outcomes of the Centauri non-conflict and signals an even greater threat to all civilization. Then there is no hope. There's always hope. At least that's what I tell myself when I awaken in the middle of the night and the only sound I can hear is the beating of my own desperate heart. Walk us through what has it been like to watch The Long Twilight Struggle. It is so essential for Babylon 5. Mm. It's so essential. And on that first watch, I knew that it was important. But each time I rewatch it, I have a deeper appreciation for how much this episode means. Yeah. And how well crafted it is. Like everything in this episode feels just right, which makes it one of the best of the series. Yes. Whenever I put this on with newcomers, when I put the DVD in and we see the, the, the episodes and the thumbnails and I see the long twilight struggle sitting there and it's right after another episode and, you know, it's just, oh, look, a series of episodes. And since it isn't the season finale, there isn't that level of the other person thinking, oh, this one's going to be a big, big deal. Because it's just another episode of Babylon 5. It creeps up on you. And so I have to play an incredible poker face every time I whack on Babylon 5 for newbies because The Long Twilight Struggle is a masterpiece. You let me know that it was a big boy, though. You let me know that it was... (laughs) It's yum-yum, people. It's perfect. It is... As you said, you're meant an essential... to wait until the end. No, sorry, got right here, right now. Yum uh, yum. Blow your load. Why Top don't, yeah. three Babylon Five episodes for sure, for sure, for sure. But uh, yeah, this is a monumental episode. I just remember I watched it, and one of the things I've come to realize over the years is there are some episodes of television, the big game changers where you watch it and you go, what? I didn't expect that to happen. For instance, uh, spoilers for the Orville season two, people, but in the Orville, the the, the robot character, Isaac, he, he has a twist and a turn reveal in which his, in which his race of people are in fact evil assholes and it's a double parter and it's this whole bing bang zoom, Wow, I didn't expect that to happen, right? You know those type of episodes. Yeah. There's many of them. I've come to realize that the long twilight struggle was not that for me. It was here kind we of go. The opposite. Here we go. It's finally happening because 
Yes, there was the momentary shock of, wow, they've ended the Narn War, it's only just started, it feels like, and wow, Londo's damned himself this early in the show, like, properly, he is fucking damned to hell. And numerous other things, right? But it was a payoff to all of this stuff that's been culminating since episode one, so it didn't really surprise me. Well, it was something like... The, the Orville, for instance. Obviously, there's little clues here and there, but that one comes as a big, whoa, what a sudden left turn. I didn't expect this to happen, but I'm glad it's happening. I'm glad I'm on this on this road now. Same with uh, uh, the best of both, both worlds from uh, uh, TNG, right? Where we've set up the Borg, we know stuff's going to happen with them, but TNG's TNG, where you can just have seasons of none of those big things happening like that. But then Best of Both Worlds comes on, and you immediately know it's a big deal when it comes on, but you're a little bit surprised, like, oh my god, we're actually going to do stuff with the Borg, oh my god, Picard's become a Borg? Whoa. The Long Twilight Struggle was more of a satisfaction in terms of they did it. They've been meticulously crafting and setting this up, and putting all the pieces in place, and here it is. We have this beautiful piece of work. This goes beyond being an episode for Babylon 5, right? We talk about episodes we like, like Gropos, for instance, is a fun episode, or uh, uh, even Confessions and Lamentations is a great episode, but this, for me, goes beyond just being a really good episode of Babylon 5, but it is a masterpiece for for this series. This is what is the gr- what is the apex of Babylon 5? What is the crowning jewel of this series? It's the long twilight struggle. You have the coming of shadows, that's also one. We have several others that will come down the come down the line, but whenever I think of Babylon 5, this episode is instantly in my mind. Just comes straight away. What do you think? I agree. <laughs> like when you think of B5, it's images of Londo's sad face and 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 Jakar's misery and 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 everyone kind of flailing about in in like this despair of what to do and this is a great example of an episode that has all of those things. And it has all of the set pieces that we know and love the offices, the chamber, the Zocalo. Negotiations, uh, space battles, uh, guest spot characters that we've seen before coming back, and uh, of course, seeding of future events to come. Because this isn't just a payoff, this is also a leaping off point. This isn't just we've wrapped things up and now we move on to the next next story arc. No, this is we're paying stuff off, but we're also building things up as well. With this episode, it made me trust the show a lot more because so many things are rewarded, but it's not that sense of we need to chop these things off. It's this story has evolved to this point. And these things are now done, and these things are in the middle, and these things are are just getting started. And it's hard to remember sometimes what 
get set up in the Twilight Struggle because a lot of the stuff that is set up and ends, I either forget how long it's been going for or that this is the place where certain things start. An aspect that I've really come to look at when revisiting B5 is as a viewer of television. I have very little actual trust in TV shows, more basic enjoyment. Like, I enjoy watching this show. I hope it won't fuck up. I hope it ends. Those type of things. But to have complete trust in the show is actually very difficult for me and for many people. But I remember in the days of watching Game of Thrones and people were absolutely on board 100%. They they believed in everything that was happening and I felt out of the loop because there were some aspects of it that just it made me not trust the quality of the show and it in but I the way that but i enjoyed it yes. but there were elements and there's many shows like that that people love like dexter for instance and are you noting down that i'm listing shows that in the end did fuck up yeah there were certain elements where I go oh they're not lining up like this they're not lining up like that and if you listen to our star trek discovery content you know that this is a thing that bugs me because it's not as if I need Star Trek to disco- Discovery to wholeheartedly line up with Star Trek canon, but at least line up with yourself. And when I see an episode like this, I, I, know, I can see that the writer and the creative team involved, the actors, the director, the cinematographer, everybody knows this world and these characters, and the themes, and they aren't betraying that. They aren't letting that down, and I feel secure. It's so joyous to watch a show without any sense of impending doom or mistrust in it. Even though Babylon 5 isn't perfect, season 5 has many faults to it, and there are obviously going to be crappy episodes and behind-the-scenes things that get in the way that we've already seen, like, Talia leaving, for example, and obviously Sinclair not being in the show as well, that are going to be bumps in the road. But to have complete faith in a show is something to praise, and this episode is a keystone in that, in 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 that, in actually looking at B5 and going, oh, I don't have to worry, they know what they're doing. Are there shows like that for you? I mean, how are you like that as a, as a viewer of media? Do you, does that matter to you having like complete trust in a show? No, no. But a lot of the time, I watch trash, so I never desire or expect that trust to be built up. The only shows where I have had that are shows that I've watched because of you, the three of them being Babylon 5, Breaking Bad, and Better Call Saul. So not Gilmore Girls? No. no. Gilmore Girls let you down. You've yeah. actually said in the past that the, 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 the I, revival also, almost I, makes you never want to watch the entire thing again. No, I, I can't go back. I've I've tried and I've watched a couple of episodes after watching A Year in the Life... <laughs> And I just, <laughs> I just don't enjoy it the same way. Right? It's easy, though, isn't it, for that to happen, where we often talk about 
in our lives, people talk about the ending or revivals of shows tainting the 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 the, the wonder that you had with them previously. But to cough, cough, Picard. Cough, cough. Star Trek Picard doing that was TNG for me. Stop it, Star Trek Picard. Please, please stop. Please, please stop. But even though Crusade and the Legend of the Rangers and the Lost Tales exist, they haven't crushed my love for B5 because we have episodes like The Long Twilight Struggle, which let's get into it. This is a big episode. There's multiple things going on. But let's start off with one of the major hitters, Jakar. He's going through a lot of stuff. <laughs> he lot got st- demoted. He gets well, yeah. He gets he gets uh turned into just plain old citizen Jakar. Uh we start off with him in his quarters talking to uh William Morgan Shepherd as a Narn. Uh as he- his uncle mm-hmm. and I don't think I fully appreciated this on any other rewatch, but the fact that that mirrors Londo's journey with his nephew mm. back in season one. Oh, with with uh, Via's that was Via's. Oh wait, uh, oh in the first episode. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Of uh, like Londo's worried that he's gonna lose. His nephew mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Jakar ends up losing his uncle in this Damn, one. That's brutal. We've mentioned uh, in our Soul Hunter discussion a lot about William Morgan Shepherd, but one of the trivia points being that he was the runner up to play Jakar. So this is the closest we'll ever get to seeing what a non character played by William Morgan Shepherd could have been in this show if it was in there. Like, this is. Here he is doing it. And I've said it before, but I could have totally seen him play Jakar. He yep. would have been a lot more stern, but I it, could totally see it. It would have been it. different. And a- Andreas brings something very specific to the role. Height is one of the things he brings. <laughs> he's William Morgan Shepard, the little, little nun. He's a little nun. He's a little boy next to Jakar. But he's his uncle. He's a little old man. Uh, but it was great to see that uh, clearly the casting people and JMS and co loved William Morgan Shepard enough not only to give him the Soul Hunter role, which is a very memorable performance and character, but to then bring him back and to have him be Jakar's uncle. I, I, I doubt that that was by accident. Considering that this guy's history with this series was he auditioned to be Jakar and impressed them enough to be the second choice, I don't think it is by accident that they made him his uncle. This is just a little wink and nod for those in the know and for the for the actor to play. But what's happening in the scene, Rachel? What's going on between the the uncle and Jakar? Because there's a lot of exposition here. Jakar is finding out the truth about the war, that they're actually losing much worse than the Kari is trying to play it off as. Mm. And they're going all in on one attack against the Centauri to try and destroy their supply lines to make it, like, not worth their time to continue the war or not be able to because they won't have access to the artillery. Yeah. Artillery. 
and they're having to change up their tactics. So they're doing this big strike because it would be an unexpected tactic on their part because the Centauri know their maneuvers and know their strategies at this point so well. They are crushing them, so they need to shake things up. And to get this fleet going, they're going to have to divert some of it away from the home world, leaving the home world momentarily uh, unguarded or with very minimal guarding. Skeleton crew. Skeleton crew that can easily get uh, rolled over. But hey, the Centauri won't know about that, so it will be perfectly fine. Uh, Cut to. Cut to the Centauri know exactly what's going on. That was so awesome. The script is constantly having countermeasures against itself, specifically when it comes to the Nan and the Centauri, where the Nan here's the thing and it's going to work out well. Cut to the Centauri know exactly what this thing is and they've already determined their plan to win. And cut back to the Nan scrambling and and fighting over each other and it just gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, marvelously done, but... One of the aspects that I thought was uh, quite quite interesting was we covered knives, uh, and well, in that yeah, episode we, we of knives, episode, in Ryan. that episode of knives, the, <laughs> yeah. the the planet, the big battle that uh, that his friend fought at, that was this heroic thing, was at uh, was Gorash Seven, mm-hmm. and the Gorash planets are the ones that the Nan are going to go after in this attack. And I thought that was a nice little callback. I thought that was a neat little detail that this once former glorious battle and capturing of this planet or the system of planets is now being used in this episode, and to see that <laughs> the Centaurum are just willing to, ah, we're just going to leave it. Uh, you can use your shadow friends to protect it, but we're going to go ahead and take the Narn homeworld directly. Yeah, they wouldn't have done it that the same way if Londo had said no. Reefa was betting on it. But he had already put things in motion because yeah. he's that confident mm-hmm. that Londo will bend. But I love that, that it just... Well, his dealings with... Mondo up until this point have suggested that. Yeah, and but he's also played Londo over yeah. and over and over again. Londo enters his scene by saying, uh, well, I've already had lost a friend because of all of this. How many others I will love, have to I happen? I love Reefer? the way that Reefer is like stroking the Emperor's uh. throne and sits <laughs> down in it. It's just glorious visual storytelling and the actor is just the right degree of hamminess for me. I have good news. The war which began six months ago is about to end sooner than any of us could have hoped. And you, Londo Molari, will be the architect of our victory. We managed to get Dr. Franklin woven into this episode yes! somehow. Uh, Jakar gets called into Med Bay to get a message delivered to him by Dr. Franklin, who um, was passing on a warning of sorts. Intel. Um, 
because of all the refugees that the Narn are getting uh, through uh, some intel because of all the refugees that Babylon 5 is getting from the Narns and this recent batch had people who had survived and been let go from this one area and all of this chatter is happening because the Centauri are acting a little differently. Mm-hmm. They have this pattern of like going in and securing the area and destroying it, and then they leave. But they hadn't locked everything down. Hence, these refugees are here. Yes. So, Jakar's just like, obviously, they have something planned. And they want to know the defenses of the homeworld. Yep. Rather urgently, though. Rather urgently. It was a different. Different kind of questioning, and Jakar can't talk to this Narn because this Narn is now dead. But he tries to go back and get in contact with his uncle and warn him, but his uncle's like, it's too late to turn back. It's too late to turn back. There's no choice. And then they get fucked over by some shadow ships. What did you Who think? take their time with it, by oh, the way. that was funny. We'll get to the they battle. They were playing with them. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they fucked them up real good. We'll get to the battle. But what did you think of Franklin being used to... Make sense. I, I, I felt... I like it. I That was actually quite an emotional scene for me on this rewatch because... We've been seeing Franklin having to deal with, on the front line, the repercussions of this war, and here he is, again, sticking his neck out and doing the right thing, seeing the horrors and injustice, and instead of just brushing this to the side or saying, this isn't my war, this isn't my place, this isn't my role or responsibility, or I can only do so much, like uh, Delenn and Sheridan have been, he tells Jakar what's going on because it's obvious that they're going to make a big move and that this is Franklin's way of trying to help sway the tide of the war and and it's just heartbreaking. Also, and also, you don't need to see the scene with Franklin and the Narn because you know what Franklin's like at this stage. You know, the, the... Nasty subplot with Frozen Lady aside, yeah. Um, this you get the feeling that this was like this man's or this nun's dying wish, and of course Franklin's gonna pass it on. Not yeah. only because it will potentially help the nun and save lives, because that's like Franklin's sacred duty is to do that. Like that's part of what he sees as his entire life's purpose but also because he's honorable yeah and he he's just a he's a good man franklin's a good man he has problems like are we all like many like all of us do but he's a good person i thought that john c flynn the third directed this who's the dp the uh, cinematographer for uh, babylon 5 and so when he directs episodes they have a certain look to them and since this episode is is big, it's grand in scale, he does something very ingenious here to ratchet up the tension, to ratchet up the stakes, to make you really feel the hit and the punches of every moment, which is 
And he does this a lot, even with episodes like Soulmates that he directed. But here it's used to perfection, which is tight shots, intense close-ups, characters standing right next to each other, right in each other's faces. And you can see that with the Dr. Franklin scene. It's actually really striking the 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 minimal amount of music the atmosphere the the quiet talking the intensity of the actors is all great but the 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 direction the the framing of the shot in that conversation underlines the seriousness of what is being delivered in the script if you just read it you go oh right it's an exposition scene blah 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 and it's like a nice little character like a uh, character dynamic where this character's helping another and this character's going to do something with that information but the 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 shot of just they're right next to each other and of course you could say well of course they would they're sharing private information with each other so you're going to do that but if you watch the episode John C Flynn the 3rd just a lot of scenes, intense close-up, intense close-up, characters standing right next to each other, and it gives you this sense of claustrophobia when you're watching it. That that uneasiness is just broiling up as you're giving this episode a go. Uh, you sense that, right, when yeah. you're looking at it? Yeah, it is a very distinctive episode in its style, and you really get a sense of how tight Babylon 5 is feeling at the moment, that level of tension, because it is like nobody has anywhere left to move. Nowhere, no one can go anywhere. They're all on Back their in. paths, and they're being pushed forward. I don't want to panic anyone, Ambassador, but I thought you should know Yes. Thank you, Doctor. The the spaceship battles, we gotta really appraise the B5 crew because yes, the CG, it's not up to snuff from modern standards, but as a, a fan of the genre, I always wished as a kid that there was always more spaceship battles and that there was creative spaceship battles and B5 delivers on that if you're into it uh this battle between the non cruisers and the uh the shadow ships if i can nerd out for a moment here is my type of shit as soon as a shadow ship shoots out a little ball and then that little ball separates into many little spidery ships i lose it i always go okay look CG is 90 CG. Don't give a fuck. That is awesome. And a little piece of what makes that awesome is there's this little musical sting, this little, I don't even know how to replicate it, but there's this little musical sting that plays when the ball is shot out and then when it does go and separates off. And that musical moment is... Like, for me, I don't stop and take notice of it mm. in the, that way that you do. But it serves its function and it does it really well. I don't really stop to critique the CG because I'm like, yeah, it's Babylon 5. It was made in the 90s. And a low it's, budget and yeah. 
It's communicating effectively the message of the scene. And it looks pretty cool doing it. There's all these little details I love. The the non-cruisers, after getting fucked up a bit, they team up on one shadow ship. They start shooting and pinpointing their lasers on one of the shadow ships, and it, it lops off one of its little legs, I guess. And you see blood spewing out of it to really give you the knowledge that it's this organic thing. And after they completely get destroyed the Narn and I love how they get destroyed this one gets cut in half and it looks amazing with the big purple laser cutting it and these Narn ships are big too that's the thing they're big ships they're not small and the shadow ships are even bigger than them but not too much bigger it's this great sense of scale and weight that you get but I love that when they go, when they're trying to escape, the shadow ships just destroy not the ships themselves, but the jump points, which we have been established so well in this universe. We know what that means. Just think about that, Rachel, huh? Yeah, it not it, that's what I meant. Like they're toying with them. They are just straight up toying with them because we we know the. The shadows have the ability to just cut through those cruises. They can just blast them out of the sky. No matter how fucking big they are, we know that their tech is better than the Narns. So they are they are toying. They humiliate them. <laughs> toying with them, humiliating them, letting them like damaging them enough that they know that they're in deep shit, waiting long enough for them to open up the jump points, Yep. then destroying the jump points, and then slowly destroying each of the Narn ships. When the Narn shoot out an energy mine and it just highlights how many of them are still cloaked or not visible... And then they open up and they're like, no, no, we're here. Just why were they cloaked in the first place? Like once one of them was already there, why not just all go and no, no, It's just this dick move. I love this. This actual sense through CG, people. This is just through visuals and CG. You get a personality of the shadows. It's not just those big fuckers, animals or monsters. There's a tactic and a sense of play with them. And the cherry on top perfection this is what i think of when i think of babylon 5 spaceship battles because we get many of them uh after it's all said and done a shadow ship comes up and grabs the one that got injured (laughs) and helps it like it's it's wounded and they're helping it and then they join together and then they fly off into the stars and disappear it's this little personality trait given there that they don't need to give but that they do and I've thought about it ever since I watched it as a kid just that little that little thing right there gives me so much about them because it's not in a way it it uh it removes the kind of mythical quality to them in a good way where before it was they're just these Deus Ex Machinas that can come in and wipe things out and do whatever, but now this one's been injured and the other one's helping it. It just adds this 
almost human quality to it, this vulnerability, this sense of, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but every time I see that shadow ship just absorb the other one and fly away, it put, I, it, give, it gives me a smile, to say the least. And another trick that John C. Flynn III uses, and B5 uses a lot as well, especially in this and the coming of shadows, is the intercutting. We cut from Jakar in a room praying that his people are going to be okay, that his uncle's going to be okay, that it's all going to work out. And we're cutting to them being massacred one by one by one. And as it's happening, the candles in Jakar's room is going out until the very end in which they're all gone and his homeworld is getting bombed back to the Stone Age and he puts out the final candle. And you can tell he has this... I don't know how, but there's this sense from him that he knows. That he knows that it's not going, it's not good. That's at least my reading of it. Mm, yeah. Which makes sense because Jakar is a deeply spiritual person. So you do get that sense of he's aware of the shift yeah it's it's absolutely fucking brutal to say the least yeah because it's it right his entire life has been for this not to happen that's his entire life his entire life is for the centauri not to do this that's all he's goal has been everything else is secondary his whole entire thing is like he said in the isn episode right never again and this episode is saying fuck you jakar it's happening again that is a huge thrust of the emotional weight of the story is you can watch this on its own right and you still get a lot out of it but watching this in reference to everything we've seen up until now, it bre- it's another level. It's another level. It breaks your heart because obviously you care for a character whose people are going to now be oppressed. But to know who Jakar is, that this is the really the central driving thing of his entire character is for this never to happen again, for his people to be happy and free even though he's misconstrued that as eradicating the enemy and dominating others the way that they were dominated yeah at the thrust of it all it is he just wants his people to be free and to never go through that again we have no choice but to surrender what about our people here i don't know it will depend on the terms of the surrender with luck the centauri will be feeling generous if not Either way, I'll return home on the next shuttle. I should be there. No, if you come back here, you will only be killed. You are the only one of the Kari who is still safe. I should be with my family. I understand how you feel. If you want to save them, you have to listen to me. When... Not only when Jakar gets the message from Nan and he's like told not to come back there. Oh yeah. That that visibly breaks him. Mm. It it breaks him. And 
you see how scared he is and how little he's feeling and the way that that comes through when he has to go ask for sanctuary. It's brutal. It is brutal to see such a commanding presence. Such a proud person. Be so small. Mm, mm. And it must bite so much to, for him to have to ask one of these earthers to do it, to help him. And especially someone like Sheridan, who he's asked for help in the past and hasn't been able to he provide it. He can't fight. He can't fight this, which is his instincts. Even though... We are seeing him work against that. We know that that is mm-hmm. what he's been trained to do. That's why he wants to go back to Narn. Oh, yes, He yes. wants to be there. He wants to fight. He wants to be part of that resistance again to get the Centauri off his homeworld. But instead, he has to go to Sheridan and he slinks in there the body language the of Jakar. Oh. Those eyes. Those eyes. And the way he presses his, his his chin into his throat because this is truly embarrassing. Like, it's not just embarrassing, but it would be a level of humiliation for him. But yeah. it's, he has to do it because as we've seen and we will very much continue to see Jakar is learning that there's more to leadership than what he's been doing before. There's more to being a a representative of your people than what he was doing, which was backroom dealings and maniacal plans and fucking over other people. He's having to restrain those urges. He's having to take sanctuary on Babylon 5 because... His life is actually worth it. His uncle even mentions it, that perhaps his role as ambassador on this ship will be more important than being a general, than being out there on the line shooting a gun or flying a spaceship. And it is. It is. It's a pivotal place to be. And to take sanctuary is obviously a great political play as well because the Centauri can't get him off of there. And so he gets to stay there and his presence as the final member of the Kari is a silent but deathly fuck you to what the Centauri are doing. The fact that he is still out there free and able to do stuff is a big middle finger to the Centauri. But I have often had a tug of war in my brain about the actual scene of him taking sanctuary because then we have the speech we have the 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 the, the council room scene and a big thrust of that is sheridan standing up saying ah he's already asked for sanctuary and there's always this little part of my brain that has a disconnect with it because it's like yeah we saw the scene we saw the scene but obviously i know what's happening there but at the end of the day have the scene because look at andres katsoulis fucking act his heart out with saying very little uh when i saw that sanctuary scene another thing that i'm really loving on this rewatch and i've i have on many but thanks to watching the gathering i'm really 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 noticing how 
people like Andreas Katsoulis or Peter, Dra- uh, Peter Jurasek or, 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 or Mira Falan are, have learned so well to play in the silence, to play in the quiet instead of the loud and the over-the-top. Because obviously they have all of those things, but seeing Jakar's face, as you said, those eyes, as he quietly asks for sanctuary and he's quivering his lips like he is about to break right then and there, but he's having to play it. He's still having to maintain that composure. That hits all the more than him being this loud, flailing, over-the-top villain or this uh, very uh, dialogue-heavy portrayal that we saw in the early days of this show. Captain Sheridan, I've been instructed by my government to come to you and ask for it. I'm loving William Forward's performance as Lord Reefer. I did not expect Lord Reefer to become one of my favorite characters upon this rewatch. As <laughs> as we go through each rewatch of B5, there's always a character that I'm hoping to like, and it sometimes happens, but then there's characters that I don't expect to gravitate towards, and then it just happens. And Reefer was not on my list, but Talia I... Talia was. I... Cannot keep my eye off of this guy. He is just so entertainingly evil. And his brand of uh, of uh, corruption that he brings to this story is so good because Mr. Morden is the 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 mafia guy. Hey, I'll make a deal, and he's like the obvious devil. But Lord Reefer is Londo but without a soul, without a moral compass to him. And he's standing right in front of Londo saying, join me, come on, let's go see the Narn homeworld get bombed. Because isn't that what you've always wanted? And it makes you question Londo, because Reef is this mirror character. He's this dark mirror to something that we've seen Londo be throughout the entire show. Because throughout the entire show, from the gathering onwards, he has talked about all these horrendous things that he would like to do, this renaissance of power, but he's never been actually willing to back it up. But then you have someone like Lord Reefer, who's the exact same type of guy, but he's happy to back it up. What do you think about that? What do you think about Lord Reefer in this episode and upon this uh, rewatch? Especially as someone as a, as a parallel to Londo. He's a piece of trash. He's unabashedly a piece of trash. And I don't even know. There's this statement that I'm sure that we've used before and is fairly commonly used. The best villains often think that they're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Reefer doesn't care whether he's doing the right thing or not. He cares about getting more power. He's amoral. That is it. That is it for him. Is it, Will this get me more power? Will this not get me more power? What are the costs of it doesn't fucking matter. Which make him a very interesting villain. 
because like you say, there's those comparisons that we draw between those two characters and the way that they interact with each other and also alter each other. But in that one way, like that one way direction, Reefa changes Londo. Mm-hmm. L- Londo does not change Reefa. As well, no, I actually, I'll take that back. No, no, Londo makes Reefa worse, worse. <laughs> stronger, that's stronger. What, yeah, that's what I was gonna. That was what I was gonna say <laughs> because Londo ends up giving Reefa what he wants, what he wants, but also. The tools mm-hmm. that Reefa needs. If the shadows weren't in connection with Londo, Reefa's big plays, mm. massive plays like murdering the prime minister after the emperor's death, and now this, mm. which we do get the sense that he is the puppet master. Yeah. At the Centauri court. Yes. Like, he mentions how he's already talked to the generals and they've already set this up. Londo, you can't let us down. He uses peer pressure tactics to get Londo to commit atrocities. Because Londo's that- War crimes. Londo is that easy to turn for him because he knows- He knows exactly. How to pressure him. And because Londo has- Londo has inadvertently, unwittingly- Open the floodgate for Reefer to us to us to take all of this power, and because Lon- because Reefer has all of this power and all of this prestige, and is playing the game, Londo has to play it with him, and Reefer's pushing him to do this, and he doesn't know any, he knows better, but he doesn't actually act on it. Reefer comes across as a as a small fish to begin with. That's what's really awesome about him. He comes across as a small fish, and before you know it, you realize, oh, he was a fucking snake the entire time. He was always a creepy, slimy motherfucker, but when you get to you this episode- You didn't realize how dangerous he was. When you get to this episode, it is this guy not only knows what the right thing is, he doesn't care. What the right thing. It's ink on a page. I, like you, Londo, have wanted a renaissance of power. I have wanted the Narn at my feet. I'm going to take it. I want the Narn at my feet, and I want to be in the royal court being the head honcho. I want this to be my chair that I'm sitting in. Yes. I don't want to just get to sit here. I want it to be mine. And... The paralleling and what makes him great as a mirror to Londo is we, the audience, see Londo struggle and actually have, uh, we see Londo struggle, we see him have regrets, we see him cautious and un, we see him afraid. We see him displeased. We see all of these emotions that tell us that he has a soul, but he's giving it away. While while Reefa, he doesn't have any of that. We but see the opposite in Jakar of we see him with those same emotions, but he reaches inwards for solace. Yeah, and he actually... 
does the right thing. Yeah, uh, he does the right thing. He follows his orders. He protects himself. He has choices. R- Londo is always about, I have no choice. He believes he has no choice here. Reefer has given him no choices. The Narn have given him no choices. I guess I'll do this thing, but it's the last time. I swear it. Of course <laughs> it isn't. Uh, I The scene in which they're in that war room area, the lighting, the, the, the spotlighting on both of them is is amazing. Really glorious to see. And them discussing how they are not only aware of the Narn plan and how they're going to take them out and destroy them, but then how they are going directly to the Narn homeworld that Reefer isn't fucking around. We're going to end this conflict. And again, I have to turn back around and it makes you really appreciate that JMS told you from day one that these nostalgic romantic views that Londo has had about imperialism and warmongering is actually quite bad because we liked Londo right in season one he was a funny guy he had no power to actually do the things he said. He couldn't and, even win a gambling. Yeah, and he has a He's fun- just an old, washed up drunk. And he's funny, and he has an accent, and he likes to have sex, and he's a nice enough guy. You could get him to do what you want with enough convincing, and yeah, sure, he has high emotions and wants to kill Jakar. But Jakar, he's not but- a bad person. Yeah, he has... And these bad things, they're kind of funny and kind of washed out because of what he is as a character. But then you come to this episode and many episodes in season two, and it's no longer cute. It's no longer excusable is the thing. Mr. Garibaldi is no longer his friend. Yeah, friendship with Londo ended. Friendship with Jakar started. And you get the scene in which Reefer tells him, we are going to use mass drivers. We are going to bomb them. We're going to flatten them down. And we need you to get your associates to take out the Narn here so that we can do that. And Londo resists and he resists and resists, but then he gives in. And he's damned. From that moment, he is damned. He has committed atrocities throughout the show already. He's already killed many people. but He's killed... Been responsible for the death of thousands. The Coming of Shadows is when he was damned, but here, as an audience, and he himself knows, there's no turning back. There's properly no turning back now. Is it the image of B5? Him on that ship? Yeah. Yeah. His face looking at what he wanted. I, I, I don't think anything can top it and we, we've surely we've surely referred to this before how JMS has said that like at the heart or if he had to take out everything but one storyline Londo would remain L- the tragedy of Londo Malari is 
Babylon 5 in so many ways. And that image Mm. shows that so clearly, so brilliantly. You can't not. You can't not recognize that as so iconic. It's hard to even talk about the scene because if you've watched the show, you know it. It's it, I, it's perfection. It is burned a perfect into your brain. It is burned into your brain. His face, the the image of seeing Nand being bombed with these mass drivers, these machines that just throw chunks of rock at them and just. Cruel, it's a cruel way to win. You it, understand there's completely no why these are outlawed. Because there's no real noble way to win a war, of course, especially if you're doing it through conquest. But even then you think, well, come on, there are many atrocious ways. And this is one really, truly atrocious way. And I love, we all talk about his face, but... There's a brilliant move here where we have we're looking out at the ship. We 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 look it, we're getting closer. One of the asteroids flies by the camera and there's a cut to it even closer. We're getting tighter. The expansiveness of this conquest, of the spectacle of the war ending and uh the CGI stuff, that's that's no longer in the frame anymore. We are going right in on what's actually important, which is Londo seeing all of his choices lead to this and seeing the absolute ruin of himself. He, he He's destroyed these people, but he himself, the looking through the reflection and the darkness consuming his face, that says it all. It says it all. Peter Jurassic's face is... It is the... It is the classic I am death because yeah, I've become death destroyer of worlds. He there's no it's a point of no return. And I've always gotta ask I ask this of new people, but obviously I gotta ask it because it's you and I. When you saw this, what did you think for Londo? Even before we get to the speech scene, before we even get to him being a even bigger, like a proper prick, what when you saw this happen? What did you think of the character and what did you think of what you're going to be like with him going forward? I thought, he's gone. He's gone. He can't be part of the show still after this. Like, he cannot still be an ambassador after he's done this. Right? Surely, surely he just goes back and he's part of the court and, like, this is the end for Londo. That's what I thought the first time I watched it. I was like, how can you keep a character around that's done this? When I watched it that first time, and even still, all these years later, all of these viewings later, the air just leaves me. I I'm I almost cry because it is just such an impactful thing. Uh and it's really complex because, yeah, I I thought he would stay throughout the whole show, but I just didn't know what they were going to fucking do because he is he is a war criminal. He is a mass murderer. He is responsible for so much evil. And 
I I I knew there just comes points in shows like with Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul or this or so on and so forth where you take a character and they go beyond that line where they can have a happy ending. They can't have a happy ending. I knew that. I knew for sure, no matter where they took Londo. Adira is not coming no, back into his no. life. Because Adira, viewer, he's not going to end up emperor and marry yeah, to Adira. Because even, and B5 success, somehow successfully does this. They managed to turn Londo around and make us like him still and make us like him and or like him again. But the idea of this character after this event ever having an ending that is happy would have been a betrayal. And because this episode made, as did many episodes, made me trust that the show knew what it was doing, I just knew that this guy will have a bad ending. And he does in a glorious way. But I didn't know what they were going to do. I I was... uh, My jaw's on the floor right now looking at this scene. I... Whenever I want to feel a gr- like great senses of emotion, I can just whack on that. I because there's so many emotions that it conjures up because of real world imagery as well. Because we understand what real world horrors of this mag like of great magnitude look like, and the people who are responsible for them, and and it's just as I said, this is a reason why the episode is a masterpiece. Yep. His face, this once funny character being taken to the darkest place that you possibly could take them. He changes over time. In his first year, he had this big purple coat, very long, very flashy, not really very serious. Uh, The hair was always going in five different directions at the same time. Over time, the hair gets more solid, gets more firm looking. We went to a black jacket this year, you'll notice, which um, is a more serious color, a little bit of blood red jewel there in the throat. I uh, wanted to, him to look more like a fighter, more like a person to be taken seriously. And that evolution goes on throughout the course of the series, going from buffoon to a very serious character. We see that face. We see it. But the other characters don't. No. That's we see for the, the private, audience. We see the, we see the private. Yeah, we get all these nuances, but the others don't. Not all the time. And then, because he's this idiot, Londo, because he's this stubborn, trapped man. Old fool. He's trapped. He's trapped. He has to embrace being the tyrant, being the monster, being the hate-filled person he is deep down. And he does it. And he storms back onto Babylon 5 with this absolute whirlwind energy all black outfit he's but got he his changes cape. into purple yeah. for that council meeting garibaldi's scared of him we we've already been told this in the show but jerry doyle doesn't get oh. too much to do in this episode but when he does he's fantastic no, when he's greeting Orlando mm-hmm. at those bays oh boy yeah he's disgusted by him Truly disgusted, yeah. but, but Londo doesn't care. Nah. That's beneath him at this point. He That's, has that, a list of things yep. he's got to go through. He's been given his marching orders and he will, he, he's going to do them. 
He's playing a role. He's got his mask on, as he said in Born to the Purple. And then we get the council scene. It's hard it's hard talking about B five episodes like this because the scenes, the moments, the performances almost feel like they go beyond analytical breakdowns and reviews and critiques because they're just they speak for themselves. The entire scene speaks for itself. You watch it, you can't help but feel something. That's the power of it. It's eerily silent, loud bursts of emotion, underpinning of sadness throughout the entire thing, because everybody in the scene is miserable. Yes. Everybody's miserable. Everybody. Londo has gotten what he wants, but he's fucking hollow and miserable and angry. Jakar is obviously devastated. Delen is is tearing up and a sad bystander and Sheridan is trying to do the right thing and trying to do the Babylon 5 thing, but it's failing. He's managed to get a win by the fact that You might Mondo, say our last best hope, hope for peace. peace failed. Uh, he gets a win because they get to give sanctuary to Jakar, but all the other things he doesn't get any wins on. The list of the decrees that the Centauri have are... Uh, oh, fucking hell. Like, <laughs> just, oh my fucking God. One Centauri life worth 500. Including the perpetrator's own family. 509. Yeah, and... Whenever I hear that, I think of the scene in which Jakar brings that up and the way Andreas delivers that the line el- elevator. in the elevator. It's just... Heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking uh, here it's because like, it's in the I... wake of it all, but Jesus. Yeah. And obviously, all of the Kari are being rounded up for trial for their war crimes, quote-unquote war crimes, and they're obviously getting murdered and executed, and he wants Jakar... This is another aspect too, is he's 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 always had this personal thing against Jakar from episode one, right? Because Jakar is his adversary, he knows he's gonna be killed by Jakar, but even though Londo has all of these intricacies and nuances and regrets and foibles that we have seen, we also see here the thing that we know from him, which is he wants Jakar. He wants to fucking kill that he wants to get one up on this guy and he's using this he wants to change his own destiny yeah and i think that's in the back of his mind as he does that i think and he gets relish in the moment when he walks up and he says that jakar's no longer a part of this council he needs to be getting to call him citizen citizen jakar he's he's absolutely having an an, uh, an evil ball doing it and that since he is the last member of the Kari, he has to be taken in for trial. Last uh, member free. Yeah, and Sheridan stepping in and saying, nope, he's, he's under our protection, and uh, yeah, we didn't sign that treaty, nor did Earth. In fact, we don't give a fuck what you have to say about that. You don't have any jurisdiction here, Londo, and the, the, the petulance 
from Londo. He's he's almost like an angry child in this scene. He, yeah. And he shouts that Londo that Jakar has to leave. He has to leave now. When you look at B5, mm-hmm. I just I know we've watched the show fucking millions of times, but I still when moments when when he shouts like that, I get a chill down my spine because again, I've watched the show many times. There's that element of I don't expect this from this character. Like for you to sink this low. Yeah. For you to be this Absolutely. Absolutely. JMS follows it all up with his best speech in Babylon 5 that he's ever written. I think that's fair to say. Jakar stands up and uh, he gives this impassioned speech and it's beautiful. I almost cry every time that it's said. What really breaks it for me, even before he starts speaking, is him slowly lifting up from the table to get up. Because you don't know what he's going to do. Even if you've watched it and you know he's going to give a speech, there's this uncertainty there. And the music is is elegant. And the Riding reac- that line. reactions of every single person in the aftermath of, Jaka- of Londo's scream. Everybody and then in, in the room being captivated by him as well. Just him standing up, it it gets my eyes watering before he even opens his mouth. And then he opens his mouth and he gives one of the many great Jakar speeches, if not the greatest Jakar speech, in which he bestows many of the values that we'll see in Babylon 5 throughout, in which the need for freedom is a powerful thing and that you won't be able to oppress us through sheer force of arms alone and uh whether it take us a thousand years we'll be free and we'll teach you this lesson again that's the thing again we'll teach it to you and uh, i mean what do you have to say about it i i don't think i can say anything more like it's just Beyond, it's just so good, and I just I can't break it down any more than that right now, or any more articulate, mm. because it is just so simple in its beauty Mm. because it's a moment that defines the characters it solidifies the path that Londo is choosing it solidifies the path that Jakar has chosen and how that's different to what he has in the past and Sheridan, Delenn and Kosh. Oh, yeah. Kosh is just there and silent. Yeah, even Kosh is beside himself. But he turns up to that council meeting. 
yeah, even the Volons thought it was a crime against sentience to mm-hmm. use the mass drivers. Yeah. I, looking at this in comparison to the coming of shadows, when it comes to Jakar, in that he broke, that the events of the coming of shadows ruined him. He he was a, a true mess. He was willing to die. But he absolutely here in this episode, which is ten times worse for him. Mm-hmm. He's grown. Mm-hmm. It is obviously breaking. It's obviously broken him in a way. Oh, that, it, he that is, is un- destroyed. But, but he doesn't choose the easy thing of lashing out. But he chooses his people and hope above himself. At, yeah, and hope. He he because at his heart he he knows what he says about freedom is true. Yeah, in that speech, it perfectly illustrates an element of strength that Jakar has learned and and will continue to learn throughout. Because before, his reaction was external, Mm, violence, Mm -hmm. strong emotions, uh, uh, and obviously to to take out the problem. But here, he's learned strength is something else. It can be something else, whether it is that they have to wait a thousand years. The power of freedom is is truly something else. There is also something else there that I, I I wanna I wanna say. It isn't just that that is what Jakar needs to say. That's the message that he wants to deliver. It's also what Jakar needs to hear in that moment. It's not just for everybody else's benefit and for him to have a final dignified moment in the chamber. He needs to remind himself of that. No dictator, no invader can hold an imprisoned population by force of arms forever. There is no greater power in the universe than the need for freedom. Against that power, Governments and tyrants and armies cannot stand. The Centauri learned this lesson once. We will teach it to them again. Though it take a thousand years, we will be free. Londo and Jakar are always on the opposite side of one another. Always. There's rarely any time where they're on the same page, let's just say. And here the episode ends. Jakar has gone through all of these atrocities. Like, Jakar has gone through all of these things. And he ends the episode with a sense of hope. He's shaken the hand of Sheridan, even though the last time he shook someone's hand, they were at war 24 hours later, and he ends it with him grasping that hand and smiling and thinking, yes, things can be better. Londo, on the other hand, is got his hand on his face, horrified. Alone. alone, watching the TV, realizing 
what's going to happen further and that everything is bad. He fucked up. It is truly great that Jakar went through all of this and still can have a sense of purpose and a soul and meaning to life, while Londo, he has seen, he has seen what he has done. And he's not happy about it. He is, he is truly sad about it, but he's, he's on the road. He can't get off of it. He decided that he can't get off of it because he has no choice. Except for he does, and he's made all the wrong choices. The war's over. Jakar is no longer ambassador. The shadows are going to become a bigger deal. The rangers are now under partial control of Sheridan. The conspiracy of light grows, and Dral is an ally because Dral is in this episode as well. Uh, everything's changed. That is one of the things, too, that on a first viewing, I just didn't expect that. The, the before and the after. <laughs> yeah, you just don't expect that. Oh, yeah, I'll just uh, whack on this episode and, oh, everything's changed what again. Now that- we already did we that with The Coming of Shadows. We missed episodes left of this season. What is this? Heroes and a villain, you know, character dynamics are all turned upside down and our perceptions of them are completely and radically changed yes. forever for the entirety of the series and it is great it is weird to me that there is a drawl plot at the center of this soul because if i have a critique with the episode it is i do not give a single fuck about what's happening on the epsilon no- 3 I don't nope. give a shit about any of that. But, uh, it's not bad. Sheridan and Delenn go on a road trip. A romantic road trip because they're smiling at each other. Yeah. And Dral is young. and It's another step in their relationship. It's another step and Dral is young. Going away and, for the weekend. Yeah. Dral is young and firm. <laughs> uh, new actor because the old actor just couldn't do the role. I uh, think. He was committed to another thing. Yeah. Uh, or something we... we we, I can't remember what the exact circumstances I thought it was were. that he was busy being on Broadway. Yes, that's it. Probably busy being on Broadway. And so we have a new actor stepping in. And the thrust of it is Dral is willing to be an ally to use the resources of Epsilon 3 to help uh, in the Conspiracy of mm-hmm. Light and, and, and the war to come. the allies, mm-hmm. the allyships. Yeah, that the, the f- are going to be building and mm-hmm. the first one, and then there's going to be more. First one of many, and of course, the little sting that Zathras is somehow involved in the drawl situation. This was, I remember as a kid, I leapt out of my seat because I love Zathras, so you I was great to hear Zathras again, and that. I didn't even connect that dot because how could I? But now this is late here. It got my mind racing and I was just wanting more Babylon 4 escapades to happen. And I was truly devastated that there was none in season two outside of minor mentionings of it, that there was no big Babylon 4 episode in season two. Uh, But this was a little treat for me because I love my boy Zathras. So we got a shout out 
to him. But we got a new actor of Drowl, so that means we have to do our spotlight section in which we talk about an actor that appeared in an episode of Babylon 5, go over what we thought of them in the, the episode, what we know them from, any interesting facts, and we are talking about new Drowl, who is played by John Shook. Shuck. Shuck. Yeah, it's one of those names where it's like, oh, that, that looks fun written down. How do I say that out loud? Is it just you a just noise? just ignore the C Shuck. that's after the S. Shuck. And he's Drowl. Uh, hot take... Spicy take. Yes. I love his performance. (laughs) Is it? Why is that so spicy? Because it's fucking over the top to the point of alienating you as a viewer. That's fucking ridiculous. It's ridiculous performance, people. (laughs) It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It is not in line with any other performance in the episode. But it's It's also distracting. It is I'm distracting. Just like, this is a man that's been on his own too much. I love his performance for one simple reason. Uh-huh. I'm a simple man. I love that the voice. Boom. I love that voice. Uh, Matt Berry should play Drow <gasps> in the reboot. <gasps> My name is Drow. I've quoted that line. Maybe top ten quotes from B5 I use on the reg. <laughs> Whether it's my name instead or Drawl, but that cadence, that rhythm, that delivery that he gives it makes it memorable. It's a normal line. My name is Drawl. But he says it, my name is Drawl. And it's like, why did he say it like that? Because he's a theater actor, Ryan. Because he's man of Broadway. Because I'm a theater man. He is Daddy Wilbucks. Of course he is. Of course he is. I love his performance because of his voice. It's as simple as that. Yes. On a technical level, if I have to be a scientist here mm. and look at the formula, it doesn't match up with anything else in the episode. No. He's distra- He's distracting. Yes. Because he's so bombastic and over the yes. top. But that deep, booming voice draws me in every time. Every time. Mm-hmm. When I think of Drawl, I think of this Drawl. Not the first one who was soft-spoken. That's the thing, too. What do you think about his performance, but to compare him to yeah. the previous draw? It, it feels different. It feels different. I tend to think of them as separate. I don't really bother comparing them much because I'm like, they're doing similar things, but they're very different performances. Isn't and they're very thing? different roles within the episode as well Mm. like the first one is like a a man who is ready to die and is bored of life and this one is reinvigorated literally it's like how she remembers him yes i i do raise my eyebrows up at the fact that they got an actor who's drastically on the opposite end of the previous one in which i i in my brain just it's a different character to me yeah when she says oh he's like the drawl i remember it's like no he isn't drawl i remembered from 30 years ago no. that we never saw how old is mm. but whatever uh yeah i yeah i i love it but i do think for me, it's a problem. I just don't believe that it's the same character between the two performers. They don't even try to make him similar in any fashion. And I find it so peculiar because they do with others. Like, 
new Natoth wasn't that different to old Natoth. It's just she no. wasn't in it very much. That's the difference. Yeah. And I, I just find him strange, but uh, he's only in this episode and one other. He's in two episodes, like the other Drahl, but I remember him because he's just so... And also, he's a big guy. Like, he's... Weirdly enough, I'm taller than him, but when I look at Drahl, maybe because of the bone on his head, I think if you told me this guy was like six foot six, I would believe you. He's just got this big presence to him, this larger than life uh, uh, look to him that it actually does add to the character because the character is this larger than life sci-fi thing where he's this hologram that's walking around and he fades away. I love the joke too when Sheridan is like, hey, wait, 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 wait a minute. And then he fades back in. Mm-hmm. I thought that was ludicrous. Mm-hmm. I thought that was... Oh, we have to give a, a shout out, though, that in this dramatic episode in which we have characters having the f- this horrific face of seeing war crimes happen, like uh, genocide happen in front of them, we also get some jaunty shower music for Sheridan as he's washing off. That's... Choices were made. <laughs> Still a masterpiece. Let's talk about the Star Trek connections first up. He's basically in every Star Trek except for the original series, right? Oh, in TNG. He's not in TNG. No, he's in the original series movies. TOS movies. He's a Klingon ambassador in Star Trek 4 and Star Trek 6. He's actually quite prominent in 4. He was in Deep Space Nine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He... uh, was an Enterprise. He was a Klingon. mm -hmm. Surprise, surprise. And he was also in Voyager... And Enterprise. Yeah, it says said Enterprise. Oh. He was a Klingon. Uh, but he wasn't in the... Well, I guess... Yeah, he wasn't in TNG. If he was in TNG, he technically would have been in, every, like, you know, original series, TNG, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise. He missed TNG. Damn, bro. I could have seen him play a Vol- uh, Romulan, like an over-the-top Romulan. I could easily see him doing that, but I guess Andres Katsoulis was too busy doing that. <laughs> so I guess couldn't get it. Uh, are you familiar with him as an actor? Because I am because uh, of those Star Trek connections, yeah, of course. Like, um, and I think I've seen him in a few other things because he is a character actor. Um, I think I, I'd seen him in the episode of... Diagnosis murder. When I took a look at that, and a few other guest spots that he did. Yes, he is unmistakable because you you can tell by he has a very uh, recognizable face, but it's the voice. Star Trek movies are what I think of him for, especially because of his voice. And I knew him as that before I saw him as. But his voice isn't in his trademarks, which is. Absolutely absurd. Because it's every his perform- gregarious smile. He does have a brilliant smile. And I'm like He's yeah. always smiling as Jarl, except yeah. for when he's frowning, when he gets really frowny. Uh but I knew him from the Star Trek movies because of that voice. It's kind of recognizable and he's very over the top. I remember him in Dick Tracy. He's a reporter in that, and again, it's the voice, but his voice matches there perfectly because Dick Tracy is a very heightened over-the-top film and a and a period piece movie, so it's going for a very specific thing. And like with uh, other actors with these type of... He has a very 
old-timey radio voice. <laughs> so it works in certain <laughs> contexts like this, like with Dick Tracy. Yes, yes. yes. Um, I remember seeing an episode or two, but not too many. He was in a revival of the Munsters, where he played Herman Munster. He was fine. He wasn't the original guy good, yeah. but, you know, okay. it's, and it's not a great show, The Munsters Today. But I don't know if you saw this. He was in Murder, She Wrote. Yes. None written by JMS. In fact, he was in a season before JMS. Season eight is when JMS is involved in Murder, She Wrote. He was in season seven. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if there's any casting over- overlap there, like the casting people from Murder, She Wrote or the casting people in Babylon 5 or like crossover there, but he was in Murder, She Wrote. And of course, uh-huh. the MASH film. Yes. Have you ever seen the MASH movie? Because I know you're a fan of the MASH show. I've never watched it. And John Shuck. Shuck? Yes. You know. (laughs) Yeah, I've just got myself. Um, John played Painless Pole. Mm -hmm. Waldowski. He's a Polish guy. Uh, The virginal army camp dentist. And did you see the fun? Yes, yes, but you say you say it's a very fun fact. Uh, apparently, he had the honor. It's an honor of being the first actor to use the F word in a major motion picture. So I did some digging on this man, and on YouTube, I found two. Very cool things. So, according to IMDb, it seems he has retired from TV and film. 19... I mean... Like, 2018 was his last credit on IMDb. On YouTube, I found a short film that has him in it. He doesn't speak, though, which is the fucking craziest thing. And it's a terrible short film. (laughs) Uh, Just FYI, it's fucking awful. But he's in it, uh, along with uh, one of the chicks from uh, like Mrs. Clown from the Ernest movies. Very bizarre. Okay. But he is in it, and that was came out in 2019, 2020. So he may oh, still be doing okay. short film projects. And I saw another YouTube video in which he's still doing uh, musical theater. And that video on YouTube was released in late 2020. So he's still physically, like he's still at least relatively recently still active in acting scenes, but maybe not Mm -hmm. IMDb-worthy acting scenes. And another thing I saw that I thought was wonderful was he did some celebrity bowling. It was filmed event celebrity bowling against uh, Billy Barty, who was a famous dwarf actor, and Dick Cavett, who was fucking terrible at bowling. The fact that Billy Barty was a better bowler than Dick Cavett was fucking hilarious. But guess who John was teamed up with? He was teamed up with uh, an actor we've done a spotlight on, Michael Ansara, a.k.a. Elric the Technomage. <laughs> there you go. Oh, There you go. And guess what? I saw the footage. They were wearing some funky 70s clothes, and both John... And Michael and Sarah oh both God. had heads of hair, which they no longer do. Obviously, oh uh, uh, Michael and Sarah is no longer with us. But they were both fucking sexy. <laughs> they were sexy. I'm just going to say um, it. They were both incredibly <laughs> handsome. 
and Dick Cavett looked like a fucking idiot, and Billy Barty was doing some funny dance moves and made me laugh quite a lot. Billy Barty was also surprisingly good at bowling. I, I just, just a little thing. Billy Barty, for some reason, because, you know, he's a little person, he, he would bowl, and the audience would start laughing because the ball's almost as big as him, ha ha ha, but he was actually really good at bowling. Like, his thing was, because of his height and the way he would throw, the ball would always curve and look like it was going to go in the gutter, but then it would kind of swerve and go perfectly in the center, and he would almost always get, like, most of the pins down, while Dick Cavett could barely fucking get one. Yeah. What a loser he is. Gee whiz. But, yeah, that's a little piece of a uh, thing that I there found. There are a few other things that I would like to share. One of them being that he was married twice. Mm-hmm. To the same person? No, okay. to different people, but he had a son with his first wife. Cool. And then after they got divorced... She went on to marry another actor. Okay. You want to guess who it was? Michael Ansara. <laughs> she saw him at some bowling and thought, that guy's sexy as fuck. <laughs> I had, and, and her name was Jeannie from I Dream no. of Jeannie. Barbara Felton. No? No. You want another clue or you want me no, to No, no, no. I'm going to hear you. it because that, that's going to be the best answer I give you. Okay. It was Leonard Nimoy. She married Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. His ex-wife went on to marry <laughs> Leonard oh. Nimoy. Oh, okay. So so his son's stepdaddy was Leonard Nimoy. Wow. Imagine Leonard Nimoy and him talking. <laughs> they have well, very they distinct voice. They together multiple times. Hey, do you think that's how... Wait. Wait, when did this divorce happen? Because if he was in those Star Trek movies and she was married to him... <laughs> I don't know where it is was, in the timeline. And she saw Leonard Nimoy on the set as director of 4 and said, Oh, wow. I'm going to have to leave John for Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> or what? Or did, did he get a job because Leonard Nimoy's wife was just like, Give him work. And Leonard's like, Fine. I'll give John some work. I don't know. You got me thinking um, now. You got me thinking. Um, I enjoyed reading through his bio. There mm-hmm. was just a line that really got me chuckling, which was, a sailor on the sly. Oh, just on the sly. <laughs> on the sly. On the sly is <laughs> a sailor. <laughs> on the sly is a snailer. So <laughs> I said what I said, and I'm not taking it back. <laughs> and then there's a quote that I wanted to share. Say it in his voice. No. Rachel, say it in his voice. My name is Troll. They'll have to go three miles deep to get what I have, and even then they would not manage to survive such a task. If you want it done in the voice, you're going to have to do it yourself. No, no, you read it. (sighs) I was just going to be disappointing compared to that. He was quoted as saying, I would much rather play the character roles Mm -hmm. I do than the leading guy. As long as you're able, you can keep working. Longevity is terrific. My name is Drum. It's a yum yum. Yum yum. It's a yum yum. Yum yum. So what are we going to be following up a masterpiece with? What is happening next time on Babylon 5? On the next Babylon 5. 
Well, what's happening is episode 21, Comes the Inquisitor. Jakar rallies the Narns on the station to uphold the resistance, uh, resistance effort against the Centauri. Delenn undergoes a torturous test for her allegiance to Kosh by a bizarre emissary called Sebastian, played by Wayne Alexander. There you go. We did it. Here we are at the end of the episode. And, uh, well, you can follow us on the social media of your choice under Yum Yum Podcast. You can support the show and get extra bonus content on Patreon, as well as get to be a part of the group Discord on Patreon. We have our discussion of Season 2 of Picard, our discussions on Strange New World, our discussions on many other pieces of media, you can go over to Yum Yum Podcast on Patreon and support the show. But people, you can also contact us via email. Rachel, what's the email for those who want to drop us a line? That would be yumyumpod at gmail.com. There you go. We did it. We're out of here. Jakar had a lot to say in this episode. He gave a speech. No, but he didn't give us. What he is didn't speech? give us the line that we craved. That we craved. If he ended his speech before he walked out solemnly by saying, Greeting to you, and a tear rolled down his cheek, I would have clapped. But since he didn't, I'm not clapping. But I will say it for him. Good eating to you, Rachel. Good evening to you, Ryan. Ah, Mr. Cannibal!